Welcome to Endless, a Sandman podcast from Chipperish Media. I'm story expert and writer posing as the boogeyman, Lonnie Diane Rich. And I'm writer, erstwhile DC Comics editor and nemesis of neglect, Elisa Quitney. Today on Endless, we're going to be talking about Collectors, Episode 9 from Netflix's The Sandman, Season 1. Collectors was written by Vanessa Benton and directed by Coralie Fargeet. Have you ever noticed how people only use your name when you're in trouble? Time to wake up. Rose very calmly comes into Lyda's room to explain what happened. She found out where Jed is and went to go get him to find the foster parents dead and Jed gone. Lyda sees Rose's missing brother and raises her one with a second trimester insta-pregnancy. Just add dreams of Hector and boom. In the dreaming, Matthew reports Lyda's vortex pregnancy to Lucienne, who realizes that Rose is weakening the walls between the real world and the dreaming. But she's not going to tell Morpheus because she's just a librarian, as Morpheus has recently reminded her. She thought he might have changed, but clearly he has not, and as neither she nor Matthew want to be banished into darkness like Galt, they need to fall in line. Corey takes Jed to get ice cream and says that Rose will be coming to get Jed, but Corey has to go to a work thing first. Jed asks Corey's name and he sidesteps. When Jed worries that Uncle Barnaby will come looking for him, Corey licks his ice cream and says he doesn't think that's going to happen. Subtext, you gotta have eyeballs to look for something, kid. Rose explains that Lyda's pregnancy is her fault and she promises to fix it. But Lyda doesn't want it fixed. She wants this pregnancy. She wants to go live with Hector and the house he built in their dreams. She doesn't need anything fixed. Rose worries about Lyda giving up on her life in the real world, but then she gets a call from Corey who says he's found Jed. He puts Jed on the phone and Jed tells Rose that they're at a hotel in Georgia. Can she come pick him up? Rose says she's three hours away and asks Corey's name, but he hangs up without saying. Gilbert offers to drive Rose to go get Jed. Back at Hector and Lyda's, they're having sex when an actual earthquake happens and they go outside to investigate, but everything looks fine. They go back inside and we see cracks forming in the ground of the dreaming. Merv comes into Morpheus' throne room looking to report the incident to Lucienne, but Morpheus says he'll address it, just as the windows in the throne room crack. Morpheus says he'll find the disturbance and eliminate it. He goes to the library to return some books and asks Lucienne if she maybe knows what caused the damage. She says coldly she thought it was him. He catches on to her mood and explains that he appreciates everything she's done and didn't mean to dismiss her contributions just to relieve her of the extra responsibilities she shouldn't have had to take on in the first place. She's still mad, but she tells him that the disturbance is Rose and he needs to deal with it. Unity calls Rose and says that she's sending tickets for Jen Rose to come to London to be with her and that she's going to have her lawyer take care of getting Rose custody of Jed so no one can ever take him away again. At the hotel, Corey leaves Jed in the room with strict instructions to stay put. As soon as he's gone, Jed takes off, finding the Corinthian at the convention opening event. While Gilbert talks on the drive to Georgia, Rose falls asleep and ends up in the dreaming, visiting with Lyda. Morpheus and Matthew watch as Rose goes into Lyda's house and tells Matthew to tell Lucienne that she was right about the source of the damage and he's going to take care of it. In the house, Morpheus tells Hector and Lyda that they both need to leave the dreaming. He sends Hector away to wherever the dead go and tells Lyda that she can have her baby, but it was conceived in the dreaming and therefore belongs to him, and he'll be coming to get it someday. 
As Lyda threatens Morpheus, he ends the dream and goes to his throne room, but Rose follows him and hands him a big dose of WTF. He tells her how dangerous she is, and she threatens to get real dangerous if he messes with her or hers ever again. She wakes up in the car to a call from a crying Lyda, and Rose promises that she'll protect Lyda and the baby. Gilbert pulls the car up to the hotel, and Rose says she'll be coming back with Jed soon. At the hotel, Corey flirts with the conventioneer posing as the boogeyman and rats him out to the organizers, who say they'll deal with it. Gilbert and Rose arrive and pose as conventioneers as well to try to find Jed, figuring he'll be where the cereal is. Gilbert goes from room to room listening to the panels and getting the sense that something's not quite right about these people, and Rose heads to the bar. The convention organizers say they found out that the fake boogeyman is a reporter and offer Corey the opportunity to kill him. He says they should all kill him together. At that moment, Gilbert comes around the corner and he and Corey stare at each other and then Corey smiles and walks off. Gilbert leaves Rose a message at the front desk that he has to go and then rushes away. In the dreaming, Morpheus tells Lucienne that he was wrong and she says he was right. The Vortex did find both the Corinthian and Fiddler's Green. Gilbert, who is Fiddler's Green, steps in and apologizes for leaving. He was just curious about what it would be like to be human. He reports in on the Corinthian and says he's found Rose. Luckily, Corey is a bit too busy killing a journalist at the hotel to bother with Rose at the moment. Jed walks in and sees the murdering, then runs off with Corey in hot pursuit, but runs into killer pedophile Funland who drags him off to his hotel room. Just as Funland is looking for his hotel room key, Rose calls out for Jed and Jed runs to her. They run from Funland who chases them and just as he's got them cornered, Corey kills Funland and tells them not to worry, they're safe with him. All right, Elisa, so here we are with collectors, a bunch of serial killers in a hotel. What could possibly go wrong? Uh, what did you think about this episode? I think this episode was, to quote a sign I saw at Norisha convention years ago, Porn and cake. It was. <laughs> the said, "We have porn and cake." And I love it. It you know it has darkness. It has some disturbing uh, stuff, but it is delivered with so much Corinthian with his sexy mm-hmm. boot tapping, ice cream licking, scene stealing <laughs> yumminess. It reminded me of vintage True Blood and that that. Mm-hmm. driving song that happens as we mm-hmm. uh, yeah. pull up mm-hmm. to the hotel. Hotel, by the way, give, it gave me some serious Brighton vibes. I know it was meant to be Georgia, but I thought, I bet that was in Brighton. <laughs> uh, but anyway, I and I love, you know, like anyone who's been to a lot of conventions, I just mm-hmm. love me a convention send up. So, yes, I liked it a lot. I love it. And it just occurred to me that all these driving scenes, they must have had to shut down the roads, right? Because if they're driving in America, they're driving on the wrong side of the road for Oh, my uh, God. For yeah, and the cars. So, yeah. Had to be an American car. Yeah. Yeah. Had to be American cars. Really, really fun stuff going on there. Um, yeah, I, I have to say, like, the stuff in the dreaming, absolutely love that. Uh, the convention representation, I got to say, felt a little bit seen. I've been to a convention or two, um, and I felt that that representation was absolutely spot on. Uh, but let's go ahead and get started talking about uh, the visuals in this episode, which I think um, are really interesting and fun, and especially the uh, the overhead shot where they're pulling into the with the music underneath like some of that stuff was really great yeah it it did feel like a bit of a different vibe I felt Mm -hmm. um the fun 
I, I felt the fun of this, the way the camera moves around and we get these mm-hmm. snippets of, of conversation from the different uh, from the different serial killers. One of the things, I mean, this is a visual in the sense it's the visual acting that struck me is, you know, a lot of the time I think, gee, why did video calling have to become such a big thing after I was over 40? You know, it's <laughs> you have a nice young face in your teens, 20s, 30s. Mm-hmm. You don't realize that your face is like that that moment when you get a new sleeping bag and it is, you know, just packed in so nicely into its case. It never mm-hmm. looks like that again after you've unrolled it. And mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, I do think, you know, um, you know, you get to an age where your feathers uh, of your stuffing have gotten a little more tamped down. But there is a plus to this. And the plus is, uh, I was thinking about the close-ups of some of the actors here. And there are a lot of young actors. I think the actor playing Rose uh, is, um, is this is her first big uh, acting gig. And she, you know, and again, I'm not dissing her acting in any way, but hers is an open flower of a face to me. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I, I get this with some of the other actors as well, where you, with older actors, yes, there's less stuffing. Yes, it, it, you, you know, you put the wrong lighting and all of a sudden, ah, Crypt Keeper. Mm-hmm. But you get so much more ability to reflect the nuance of a sunny mood turned shadowy, um, a, a feeling of poignancy underlying something. It's like it's like a Steely Dan song. Even the happy songs have so many weirdly uh, senti- not sentimental. You 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 you've sadness running through all the happy, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. sometimes happy running through the sad. And so, you know, when we had uh, David Thewlis and I'm blanking on Sarah, Sarah Niles is the actress or the character? Sarah Niles was the actress, ah, yes, okay. who played Rosemary, yes. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, you've got people who've lived in their faces a little bit longer. And so when you get into a close-up, you, you get more of the feeling of all the currents underneath the surface. Because there's less surface to break through. Now, obviously, you get an Anthony Hopkins or a Meryl Streep. And even in their, you know, firmly packed faces, you get a lot of nuance. But I was thinking that maybe one of the reasons that I so relish uh, the actor playing the Corinthian, Boyd, um, Mm -hmm. Boyd thingy, Boyd. Boyd someone. Boyd someone. Um, Boyd someone, yes. He just deserves to be a one-named actor. Well, just Boyd, like (laughs) Cher. He's just Boyd. Yeah, exactly. Um, So... You know, with him, that what he's playing is more to the surface. He mm-hmm. he is playing underneath the surface. He is a uh, homicidal person delighting in his homicidalness. And so yes. that is, it's right there to be had. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, I think the actor playing Hal does a really good job of conveying underneath a facade of, um, you know, ironic distance and arch charm there's something a little more painful underneath so so this was my my long-winded wow quitney long-winded way of saying that there are moments where i miss the older faces and the nuance that you get from them. Well, definitely. I think that, um, you know, I think that most of us, by the time we get to a certain point in life, have been traumatized enough 
that we realize too that the things are complicated um, and that life is complicated and so there are spaces to express and also those actors I think also have had like a lot more experience acting just because they're they've been in the game a little bit longer you know um, I did really appreciate uh, Rose when she told Morpheus to fuck off I was like yeah I like that she laid it down and she was like get out of my face because I am the powerful one here which I really really liked um, but yeah I definitely I can definitely see that element. Tom Sturridge is fairly young. I think that he definitely brings a, a a lot of nuance into and a lot of this like under the surface. Like his his lines, what he actually says are are pretty simple, you know, not complicated. He's not doing these long monologues about his feelings. But you can see what's going on. Like when he's talking to Lucienne, both with these young faces, but freaking beautiful, right? You know, like when he's talking to Lucienne and you can see how he's struggling with this apology thing, which apparently is something that he's learning to do now, you know, um, how he's struggling with understanding things from her perspective and appreciating her and making her feel appreciated and seeing him go through that. Like, it's very simple dialogue, which I really love. And I think that like they're, they're pulling it off really nicely. I agree. You know, I've seen some storage bashing and I... Mm -hmm. think he's actually doing a great young Morpheus. What what we got from the comics, depending on the artist drawing Morpheus, was older and younger, uh, more human and, and spookier, more supernatural. Um, what was his name who did Overture Sandman? I, I was J.H. Williams, the third. Mm -hmm. The third. Um, he drew Overture Sandman, which was actually, it, it came after the Sandman series, but it shows a, uh, a different and more unearthly Sandman who looks, uh, I think Neil actually said to me, like a gun grizzled gunslinger, kind of, a grizzled gunslinger, not a gun grizzled. But um, so there are moments where I think uh, I, I loved uh, Alan Rickman as Snape. And there were moments oh, yeah. where I, I wanted to see what an Alan Rickman would have done with an older oh. variant of Morpheus. He would have been amazing in that role. That would have been really incredible. Um, yeah, I, I love the idea of, because we do see Morpheus, you know, changing shape. We're going to see him as a cat, right? We've seen him as a, a very youthful young black man, African man. Um, and so it would be really interesting to kind of see him age and then become more youthful. And then depending on where he is in his thinking, that would have been really, really neat. Um, the visuals in this, I have to say, like, I, I, one of my favorite shots in this whole thing comes in the middle of this dramatic scene where Lida has realized that she is, like, super pregnant. Like, she went to bed. She was not pregnant. She wakes up in the morning. She's been having fun with Hector. Suddenly, she is, you know, like, six months pregnant. And we just see Rose's perspective as Lida's stomach edges into the screen in her face and something about that shot is so funny to me it has such a great sense of humor in that one moment which is a dramatic moment and I love it and they have to they, they remembered to put in that dark line under the belly button which is, mm -hmm. it makes it look very realistic. Absolutely very realistic. Um, so I really enjoy that. One of the things that we don't talk about that much, though, when we talk about this show is like the sound design. Uh, yeah. We do talk a lot about the visuals because the visuals come from the comics. And there is um, an impression of sound that also comes from the comics as well, which when you have artists who can draw acting 
and sounds and like, and the letter again if yeah. you have not yes if you have not read the comics read the comics if com if you think comics are not your thing allow yourself a little time to adjust the same way that you do to cold water in the pool <laughs> and it will be amazing it will be amazing like I just have to I cannot recommend enough that people start reading comics I think it's amazing um, but the thing in the sound design that I absolutely love we have this over the head shot right as Rose or as Jed and um, Corey are driving into um, into the hotel the convention hotel and this song um, by Brothers Osborne called Skeletons you've skeletons in your closet so perfectly like the beats of it the shots that they use um, you know we've got like these beautiful lighting and angles and construction of these composition of these shots um, and I love that it's a tiny little sequence it's a transitional sequence we're going from one space into another um, I absolutely love everything about that and and you know we talked last week about the sound work that was under Hal pulling his face off in the dream um, and the way that that worked so beautifully beautifully with not just the sense of the viscera, but the ease with which he was able to pull off his face, which in real life would be a little more complicated, I'm certain. Um, but in the dream is so like, it's such a swift and easy movement, but with all this sound giving it friction, you know? Mm. Um, and so one of the things I absolutely love the choice of music you know, in this oh, show, God, yes. I, I love the sound design, the work that is done. And the thing is, is that really, really great design is often like the better the design is, the more invisible it is, the more we don't notice it because it, it creates exactly what it intends to create. And then it just kind of slinks off to the side. So I wanted to take a moment to give a shout out to the incredible sound design that's not just in this episode, but has been throughout the entire series. I think it's been phenomenal. Yeah, yeah, I know it's a distinctive sound, and I love that music. I've got to put that on my mm -hmm. on my sound. Oh, it's play. so good! Absolutely, it is Fuel so my good. Corinthian fantasies. Oh my goodness! Yes, absolutely. Um, all right, so you had some wonderful stuff talking about dream houses um, that I thought were some really, really great insights. Well, thank you. I I started to think, you know, I had read. Um, a couple of weeks ago about how the theme of houses and, you know, what you call damseling, the, the sidelining of women, was a conscious theme in the writing of the original comic series, uh, this, mm -hmm. yeah. this mm -hmm. bit. And I was thinking how anyone who has had to deal with a parent or a grandparent's house, you know, you've got to know how much uh, and a house, an apartment is an extension of yourself. And it's everything. It's the logic or illogic of where things mm -hmm. are placed, the way mm -hmm. a bookshelf is organized, the way space is utilized, the way certain things get hidden and other things are, are revealed or displayed. And, mm -hmm. you know, forgive me, Hector and Lita's dream house is kind of boring and empty. It's, it's like the houses you tour with a real estate agent. They make you hide away all the mm -hmm. personal items and the magnets on the TV and anything they want. They, they tell you to paint everything white so that anyone can picture themselves mm -hmm. in that space. And I'm mm -hmm. assuming that this choice was deliberate. And so, mm -hmm. you know, what does it tell us about the quality of this dream? It's, it's not, it is not really a place where they are living. It is a place where they are having a, a, a fairly superficial, you know, everything white, a white nursery. Let me just, for anyone who's considering having a white nursery, I will suggest to you, don't do it because vomit is not white and <laughs> urine and feces are not white. 
and just it, there's it's it won't be a white linen life for long. It won't be white for long. It will not be white for long. Definitely. The more colorful you can make a nursery, the better it is on you. Right. Um, yeah. I love that. I actually discovered my daughter is now 24 and I discovered in a drawer, mm-hmm. a box, a hand knitted yellow sweater with some vomit on it. And I suddenly had a flashback to thinking, <laughs> oh dear God, she threw up on it. I, I can't deal with this right now. I'm just, I'll deal with it later. Uh-huh. And I guess and just never did. Well, 24 <laughs> years later, I watched it. <laughs> so, Wow, I love that. <laughs> okay, but to go to a different yeah. house here. So there's Hal's yes. house. Mm-hmm. And Hal is so dismissive of his house. He says mm-hmm. he would abandon it in a moment if Broadway called. And I'm just thinking, Hal, mm-hmm. you, are, you are wrong. You are actually... I feel like the true story of how I know that this is meant to be Rose. You should be a writer. Follow your dreams no matter what. But he's created this wonderful, interesting life in a town mm-hmm. that looks cooler than any town I've ever been to in Florida. I, I, I once lived in Miami and I moved out. And this was back when there were bookstores everywhere. And I said, I, I moved out because if you ask people, where's the nearest bookstore? The answer was they had no idea. And uh-huh. Sorry to diss mm-hmm. Miami. Maybe it's changed. I doubt it. Um, but Hal lives in a cool place. He's created a found family and he dismisses mm-hmm. it. And I thought that was another moment where I thought, mm, I'm not sure that the the story is doing what perhaps it's it's meant to do. If 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 the takeaway mm-hmm. is that Hal is living a, a secondhand life. I don't buy it, mm-hmm. and I want the spinoff. You want the Galt spinoff? I want the spinoff with Hal and, you know, It's a Wonderful House. It is a wonder. It is a wonderful house. And he has built this whole sense of community, and there are these communal spaces, and everybody's living there, but they're not separated, you know? And I think that part of what has become the, you know, the, the American um, ideal, you know, is this very separated, very isolated life, this nuclear family, you you know, in which darkness is often hidden and, you know, and there's not this sense of community um, around people anymore the way that there used to be. And so one of the things that I really love is the sense of community in this wonderful, quirky, weird ass house that Hal has, you know, and the fact that he doesn't realize what it is, you know, that he is absolutely prime material for It's a Wonderful House. Like, I absolutely love that idea. Um, but one of the things that I was thinking about when I was reading your notes is that I, from the time I was little, I've always noticed that I have house dreams all the time. Yes. And in the dreams, the house is always different from the way, if it's a real house, different from the way that it was, or it'll be the house that like I grew up in, in the dream, but it's nothing like the house that I actually grew up in. And there's always these weird Alice in Wonderland halls getting bigger, halls getting smaller, having to crawl through certain Extra spaces, rooms, right? new like, secret rooms. You open a secret yes. house, there's always a secret room. Yes. 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 So the dream house for Hector and Lida, like when you mentioned like how incredibly like, you know, um, a beautiful home apartment living it is, you know, um, it, it does feel it, like it lacks personality, um, which I think is something, too, that we get to um, in the relationship between Hector and Lida. And as we're talking about this house and Hector and Lida, um, you know, I was I was thinking about this stuff that you wrote uh, in our script today where you were talking about kind of like the romance between Hector and Lida and sort of like what's missing in it. Okay, so I found myself wanting to do a little, I I don't know, maybe the Corinthians got me thinking about fan fiction. And so (laughs) I started to think about how I would uh, 
maybe depict the Hector Lyda sex with a little more crunch, as it were, a little yes, something else in there. So I I wrote a very brief scenelet vignette. A very brief scene for Hector and Lyda in which I will be playing Hector and Elisa will be playing Lyda. So uh, I'll go ahead and uh, and give it a start. Oh, wait, I, I guess I should set it up and uh, set up the scene. Yes, yes. <laughs> so we are we are lying in bed or and, and uh, I get up in my silky, silky uh, pajamas and I try to open a door and Hector says, that's not finished yet. Okay, great. So can I have some input here? Because so far you've designed a house with absolutely no place for knickknacks. Also, the neighbors can see everything. We can never walk around naked. We don't have any neighbors. So clearly your dream house. I like neighbors. Also, no one to overhear you when you start shrieking at me. What are you talking about? I never shriek. (laughs) Yeah, you do. When do I shriek? I don't think I... Oh, hey, that's cheating. Wait, are you sure there aren't any... Neighbors here. Oh, wait, I... Ah! <laughs> and in the next scene with the dream house, we should see splashes of color. Lightest influence. There, oh, that's what I loved the most about what you wrote. I mean, it's so cute. But the idea that the great sex creates color in a house that has no color in it. You're in the dreaming. Have the house that you want. Put the clown paintings on the wall for your you know good place references and call outs there. But I absolutely love that. And especially the role that houses have in dreams. And I'm so excited to hear. Like, I haven't talked about my, my house dreams. I'm excited to hear that this is actually a thing that lots of people have that you have clearly experienced in the same way. I had apartment dreams. I grew up in an apartment. Uh And so there were Mm -hmm. also I had elevator dreams that were very like the Mm -hmm. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. But that's Oh, so interesting. I love, you know, the thing is, is that, um, you know, there's there's this uh, thing like what is what is it? Oh, it's from The Ref. The Ref is a, like a 1994 Dennis Leary movie that we watch with my family. Like every time when the kids were little, you know, we sat down and watched this movie every Christmas. And it, of course, is this like, you know, movie about a, a Dennis Leary kidnaps a couple at Christmas. And then it's all this terrible thing. And so there's one point where the, the wife is talking about her dreams. And then and he's like, I don't know what kind of loser thinks anybody's interested in their dreams. And I'm like, so whenever I start talking about dreams are really interesting in like what they reveal about the psychology. And when we get into the fiction in which an entire world is in the dreaming, when you have this like huge house that looks like the ideal house, like the thing that they would actually want, but it's so empty and white and plain inside, it says a lot about your characters. Yeah, it's it's a sort of, oh, uh, to me, it's a little bit too much of a ghostly house. I just suddenly remembered. Um, so in the 1970s, my mother, like just about everyone I knew, had a book called The Kin of Atta Are Waiting for You. It is a really strange book about uh, dream reality. It is kind of about a dreaming uh, in a very different way. So anyway, I uh, just suddenly wanted to give a shout out to a book everyone used to read and no one has heard of now, The Kin of Atta Are Waiting for You. I'm going to definitely look that up. I don't think I saw that on uh, on my mom's shelves, but I'm, I'm definitely interested in seeing what that's about. 1970s, uh, you know, nonfiction, I think, sounds really, like, interesting stuff. It's not mm-hmm. nonfiction. It's, uh, it's, oh, it's, it, it's fantasy. It's sort of feminist, uh... Uh, radical fantasy. 
I dig it. I'm definitely going to check that out. Um, so one of the things that the themes that kind of came up in this episode is like the caretaking. You're living in someone else's dream. Uh, we have a number of adoptions kind of happening here. And so you had some really great insights. I was wondering if you want to talk about that a little bit. Oh, thanks. Well, I was thinking how, in a way, when you're, I have, I've been, I have a friend who's doing a lot of caretaking of an elderly parent. I've done, I've done mm-hmm. some too. And um, also talking to friends who are, you know, the lead parent with a child, a young child, yeah. it's like living in someone else's dream. And then I thought, well, you know, we've actually got interesting examples of caretaking here. We've got Gilbert adopting Rose and the Corinthian sort of adopting Jed. We've got the cruel and useless pair of Barnaby and Clarice. <laughs> Lyda taking care of Hector by handing over what's presumably her dream and letting him up, sit, set up his own dream life there. And, you know, in between complete self-sacrifice and evil self-interest, we only have one example and my my own personal favorite, Hal. So going from, you know, uh, caretaking, living in someone else's dream, here we are in this hotel, this conference, and it does feel kind of dreamlike in that it is this uh, completely ridiculous conference that would never actually happen where a bunch of serial killers get together. And granted, they use the, you know, incredibly clever serial convention as though it is breakfast cereal, um, which I don't think fools anybody. Um, its own kind of evil, by the way, breakfast cereal. Its own kind of evil. That is an entirely different discussion. Um, but, you know, like one of the things, as I mentioned earlier, that I absolutely love about this is the like how um, it both skewers and celebrates the experience, like the niche nerdiness of, of what happens at these conventions, you know, um, like the deep dive topics that happen. And as Gilbert is running through the hallway, poking his head into all of these things, and you see the alarm on his face increase with every room that he visits. We hear these people talking about all of these different things with brute force if necessary, you know, and he's getting the sense that like, yeah, something's not quite right here. Uh, but I absolutely loved the representation of the conference experience where even when like I am deeply invested in the nerdiness and would go to, you know, like fiction writer versions of all of these, you know, topics, um, it's it's funny to see it from both the outside and yet at the same time, but like, absolutely, I would go to that session. <laughs> no, absolutely. Okay, but I noticed something that, mm-hmm. I, I noticed it the second time I viewed the episode. So there is mm-hmm. a moment in the previous episode where the Corinthian walks up, sees Rose, he's walking toward her, and then Matthew is talking to her. And just as Matthew says, I can feel the Dream King in the back of my head. It's sort of weird. And the Corinthian backs off. So then I, I need to call him Corey, too, because it's so long to yeah. say. Yeah, <laughs> the Corinthian takes a little while. I've just called I'm calling him Corey. He's got a nickname. So this time, um, he, Gilbert spots Corey and -hmm. looks horrified, but Corey doesn't seem to notice Gilbert. And, you know, before the angle was wrong, so Matthew didn't see the Corinthian. But this time I'm thinking, why didn't the Corinthian see Gilbert? He does kind of raise his head and looks but he reminds me of a shark who's caught a whiff of blood or something uh-huh. like that, but isn't completely sure. And I suddenly thought, well, 
he sees when he eats someone's eyeballs. The rest of the time, right? he's blind. Mm-hmm. Isn't that interesting? He does, you know, like, I think function pretty well. But then again, you know, we've got Daredevil, right, as as an example of, of how, you know, how in comics, especially in superhero lore, we can have somebody whose, whose senses will actually compensate for, you know, the inability to see. Um, so, yeah, I find that really interesting. And the eating of the eyeballs is always a really interesting thing. So I, um, I mean, I might be I like wrong it. about this, but I've never really thought it as clearly. Well, I mean, he has teeth for eyes. Like, he has mouths for eyes. Yes. Like, if he could see, how would he see? Then again, I mean, he's a nightmare. Like, he's not, you know, um, restricted to the realities of, of this plane. But, yeah, that he has an alternate way of seeing, I could definitely, um, I could definitely understand that. Yeah. And, you know, dogs who move through a world of scent um, mm-hmm. can navigate really well you know, without, without vision. Uh, Mm -hmm. So anyway, that's my, my theory, which I will, will have to test out and see if if it's correct, is that he's really interesting. I don't know if we've ever seen him like read anything or anything, but it does seem like there is that moment where he, he, it looks like he does see Gilbert, but is so unbothered by Gilbert's presence. Like he does seem to pick it up. So, uh, but then he just wanders off and goes about his business. Like he's completely Completely not threatened by Gilbert. Um, but I find that really interesting. Um, yeah, it'll be interesting to kind of see if, like, when I watch this whole season again, which I will, um, I'll keep an eye out, no pun intended, for ah. that kind of thing. Um, but one of the things that I really loved about, you know, what they did with with Corey in this season, like these, these adaptive choices that are so good for the storytelling, um, is that we tie in, you know, um, Corey's motivations to Rose. He needs the vortex so that he doesn't have to run anymore. He has that moment with Jed where he says as soon as Rose gets here neither one of us will have to run anymore because he won't have to be running from Morpheus um, and I absolutely love that that's all tied together um, menace for menace's sake is not good in fiction we need to have behavior motivation tied in together and when you have menace with motivation that directly crosses into your protagonist's path that is absolutely beautiful I feel like there are so many lessons for writers in how this adaptation has been built. Um, And I kind of want to do a class where we read the comics and then we analyze the season itself Mm. and look and isolate all of those adaptive choices, how they they work for the particular form in which has something that worked wonderfully in the comics needs to be adapted for a TV series that has different strengths and you lean into whatever the strengths of the form are. I think it's absolutely a class that can be done. It's so wonderfully done and I love it. I think that would be an amazing thing to do. I think that one of, um, we had at one point talked about doing a kind of method and magic course about how you invite in the magic of writing too. I think Mm -hmm. that in the moments where the adaptation soars the most for me Mm -hmm. is where it actually does leave the source material fully behind and embraces the possibilities offered. So, you know, where you get a David Thewlis plays John D with less horror and more humanity that gives a different flavor of horror. Where you know you you have all of these 
possibilities that that offer themselves. So anyway, I love the idea of doing an exploration of the adaptive choices and also looking at how one can fully take advantage of the new possibilities offered, you know, in this new version. Right, right. Like Galt. Yes. Right. Like, I mean, Galt was not in the original source material. And yet she fits so beautifully into everything that's going on in this season. And I absolutely love it. Um, One of the things, too, that I really loved in this was the character arc. How we see Morpheus himself in the beginning, Luciana saying he hasn't changed. He hasn't changed. He's exactly the same. I forgot how he was. Right. And then later, Gilbert is like, look, he said he's that was almost an apology, you know, when when he was talking to you. And that is such a huge movement for him. And I also love that it's Gilbert who saw that Gilbert, who is like so newly, you know, human. Um, his experience of humanity is, I think, illuminated by the fact that he hasn't always existed in a form that could understand it. And his his excitement about what it is to be human, where there are things that we as humans are people um and again like you know morpheus isn't human lucian is probably not human or maybe started out that way or whatever but the, the all of these characters are coded as human and they're having a human experience regardless and i i love that that his newness to that experience gives him a perspective that that other people could could miss absolutely and what you're talking about in terms of character arc is one of the places where this whole series rings the most authentic, the most resonant for me, because, you know, when you love somebody and you commit to them, there is a way that you don't completely understand how much you're committing, not just to the person in front of you, but to the person that person will become. And it's a promise, you know, for a person in the future that you will evolve into that you may not completely be able to predict. It's you know, we, we have to allow our intimates and our colleagues to change. And it, it reminded me of, you know, there's a Mary Chapin Carpenter song, uh, He Thinks He'll Keep Her. And it's, uh-huh. it's, about, um, it's about a Barbie and Ken kind of marriage and how the woman changes. And, and there's that, you mm-hmm. know, that, that comedy line, you know, oh, my wife, I think I'll keep her. And the line is from that, <laughs> he thinks he'll keep her, but she's yeah. changing. And so I, I love that with it, it makes the Morpheus Lucien more of an authentically partnered relationship, even though it's a work relationship. Well, you know, work relationships are family relationships, especially in storytelling. Every workplace story is always a found family story. And because those relationships in the fictional workplaces are deeply, deeply personal. You know, um, they're not all about memos and passive aggressive emails, you know. Um, But one of the things that, that I love about that idea about allowing people the space to change um, is that like the idea of promising somebody forever because you are making that promise for two people in the future who are completely different people from who you both may be now you know everybody is going to change and that the best thing that you can promise is that if and when we do leave each other that we leave each other better be that you know divorce or death or whatever that that is the best promise that you can make is that I promise to do everything in my power to leave you better than I found you and if you make those promises to each other then the arc of a relationship wherever that arc ends um, ends in a 
place that is good and positive for everybody involved. But this I will, you know, I will be with you until death do us part no matter what is basically a recipe for total disaster. Um, There are people who can stay together forever, who can change together. Absolutely, that can happen. But making that an absolute requirement rather than that I leave you better than I found you, um, I think is is where we sort of go wrong with those ideas. My God, Lonnie, I have never heard anyone say it so well, and I have never agreed with you more. Oh, awesome. Well, okay. I think that sounds like a good time to take a break while I'm on a high, and we will move into Lucian's library when we come back. If you're enjoying Endless, a Sandman podcast, then you should know that it is only through our Patreon supporters that we are able to produce this content for you. So we'd like to take this moment to thank everyone who supports us at patreon.com slash chipperish. This episode of Endless was brought to you by the Chipperish patrons who support us on Patreon at the power producer level. Thank you to our power producers, Alice, Christina, Erica, Jane, Kevin, Kristen, Michael, Rose, Sarah, Shelley, Stephania, and Stephanie. All Chipperish supporters get access to the Chipperish Discord chat, where you can pop in, meet other Sandman fans, and chat with the Chipperish creators. And at $10 a month and up, you can even attend live tapings for some of our shows. Thank you to our intrepid editor, Jack Cram, whose time and skill is paid for through your support. If you'd like to support Endless and Chipperish Media, please visit patreon.com chipperish and support us today. Okay, so here we are with this section of our podcast called Lucian's Library. This is where we talk about extra textual things. We talk about themes. There may even be light spoilers or behind the scenes types of stuff. You never know what you're going to find in Lucian's Library. Like the first thing on our list, which is Robert Checkley's grave. Yeah, so I unexpectedly got a message from uh, Neil who said that he Mm -hmm. had been uh, passing by my father's grave and he, my father was the science fiction writer, Robert Sheckley. And he said he cleared it off a little. And Oh, God, that touches my heart so much. Neil, I just love you. Anyway. It's, it's also, you know, I love it. And it's, yeah. it's so on brand. I just, of course, clean off the grave. What a beautifully poignant and slightly macabre thing to do and loving and um and I thought I would mention you know so I think we we all have fantasies of what might happen with our writing um my dad who was I I have to say of an odd relationship with my father he didn't raise me or really any of his kids uh who are I (laughs) I have half siblings uh Mm -hmm. but he uh was a wonderful writer and a generous writing mentor and mm-hmm. I learned a lot from him. He was a humorist and an absurdist. And mm-hmm. I, I thought I would honor his memory by just reading this little quote um, that mm-hmm. he has loved fantasy and science fiction. The field can and does embrace everything from wildly romantic adventure to satire and social commentary techniques and approaches. And he said it gave him freedom from a rigid formula. I thought that that was Something to remember as we're delving into the Sandman, which obviously does not adhere to any rigid formula. And um, and I wanted to say to anyone who is curious about Robert Sheckley's work, um, the one of the stories that I know uh, Neil has read and enjoyed, uh, and, mm-hmm. and the story that my mother read before she met my father, 
She should have been warned. But anyway, it's uh, it's called Warm. So yes, you can read Warm for free uh, on Gutenberg. The link will be in the show notes. Absolutely. I started reading it. You sent it. Um, you put the link in the in the script and I was looking at it this morning. And I started reading it, but I was interrupted by the fact that we had to record this podcast at a particular time. Um, but it was definitely really interesting. And, you know, and I love that, you know, your dad, like everybody, is complicated, you know, but he was a writer and now you are a writer. And I think that's such a wonderful thing. And, you know, to have a friend who would stop by your father's, you know, grave and clear it. um, That is such a wonderful expression of love and friendship. And I'm so incredibly touched by that. Well, I I have to say, I mean, it's partially for me and partially because Neil had his own reader uh, experience of Robert Checkley growing up. So they they had their own relationship. Um, but still, I think I, that's a really nice Did I ever, thing. I, mm-hmm. have I told on the show the story of how uh, Neil realized I was Robert Checkley's daughter? No. <laughs> oh, I haven't told the story. I have an actual Lucien's. I don't think you've told me on or off the show. I don't think I heard that. Yeah. Um, so I think we, I can't remember. It was during A Game of You, um, which is a storyline that is hinted at in some of the dreams in, in uh, the episode before this one. And I can't remember exactly how the conversation started up. I think that Neil and I were talking about writing themes and uh, and different kinds of stories and quests. Mm-hmm. And I said, have you ever read the writer Robert Sheckley? Because something about the conversation and the storylines reminded me of my dad's uh, stories. And Neil said, yes, I have. And I'm a huge fan of his early work, his short stories. <laughs> but then, you know, something happened. I think he kind of lost control of the fact that the interesting thing isn't that, you know, I can tell you, hey, I fooled you. You're, oh, this isn't a real world. This isn't a real story. And, and all of this sort of breaking of the fourth wall. But the fascinating <laughs> thing is the magic itself. And there was a pause. Mm-hmm. And I said, he's my dad. And <laughs> Neil... You know, uh, was absolutely appalled and said, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. And I said, no, 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 I agree with everything you've said. So that was that was how we. uh... (laughs) That is exactly exactly what would happen to me if somebody brought up an R, I would go into my whole like analytical critique and then find out that it was a beloved relative so yeah I can I can definitely I I feel Neil's chagrin on that one yeah but it was it was delicious and and perfect Mm -hmm. and uh I love it yeah so anyway that's uh that turned into more of a Lucien's library uh bit than I thought it was I like it Lucien's Lucien's library sometimes spins out off of the script and we end up going into interest places, but I absolutely love that story. Um, But getting us back into Lucien's library, one of the things that I noticed in this um, is that we have a mystical pregnancy, which is a trope. I've done a lot of work with Joss Whedon shows where mystical pregnancies are so common that one character had, I'm not kidding, at least two of them. Wait, who did? Um, uh, Cordelia, an angel. Oh, God, you're right. Yeah. I am right. I know. It's just that the mystical pregnancy thing is something. And the thing is, is that ordinarily, um, because of like the generally misogynistic ways in which this trope tends to get employed, my first knee jerk response and knee jerk responses are always bad to every mystical pregnancy I see is all for fuck's sake. You know, like I've just had enough. Right. 
But I realized that it took me until the third watch of this episode to even realize that Lyda is indeed experiencing a mystical pregnancy, and it never bothered me at all. So as I go into, one of the really interesting things about fiction is the way it reveals us to ourselves in our responses to it. I actually will use fiction often as almost a form of like, you know, therapeutic insight in that like I'll have a response to something. I'll be like, hey, take a minute, step back, approach it with curiosity. Why am I having this response? And the thing that I was curious about is why am I not having this response? Why am I not having this knee jerk? Oh, I hate this response. Why am I instead charmed by, of all things, a mystical pregnancy, which is a trope I hate? Um, so I'm going to take you through, like for the writers out there, I'm going to take you through a process um, that you need to walk through when you find yourself knee-jerking in response to tropes is really ask yourself why, because a trope isn't bad in and of itself. It's bad in the way that it's used. And typically, the unwanted mystical pregnancies that I have seen come against the pregnant person's will uh, so that we can inflict body trauma on that person. Um, it's really difficult to watch. Um, oftentimes, they're forced to carry this pregnancy to term against their will, um, all of that could be especially traumatic for people who can become pregnant. Um, but this is a deeply wanted mystical pregnancy forged in love and grief. I am so here for it. There's no body trauma. There's no threat of forcing someone to take an unwanted pregnancy to term to serve some demon agenda. Um, it's heartbreaking. It's wonderful. Lyda got a piece of Hector back after losing him. This is a wanted and loved baby. And now one of the things that I love the most is when something I don't like, I find an example of how it can work and how it can work well, because then it gives me another opportunity to talk about how you never dismiss anything out of hand, that there are ways to make things work. Don't hate the trope, hate the way it's played. Um, so writers out there, absolutely. Um, this is an example of a way in which you may find yourself reacting to certain particular things that people do, but know that there are ways to make that work. I love this mystical pregnancy. No, I, I, I love that you brought this up. I'm so glad you did. I have two big thoughts. One is great adaptive choice because in the comics, mm -hmm. her pregnancy, the fetus gestates so long in dreams. And now yeah. the mystical thing is the opposite. It's the rapidity. And, you know, the reasons for why that had to change have to do with other plot considerations, but it is a, a stroke of genius to, to switch yeah. that in that way. The other thing I wanted to say is in the Bible and in fairy tales, um, you've got a lot of when people are going to be special, the, the mother is almost always barren and only becomes mm -hmm. pregnant because of some divine or supernatural intervention. Intervention, And sure. so that mm -hmm. the reason I think that a the trope of the magical pregnancy resonates for us is because, you know, for some of us, we go back to, oh, wait a minute. You know, there's there's uh, the the Rachel who can't get pregnant in, in the Bible. Mm -hmm. And you've got yeah. the mandrake and all the mystical and the switching. And then you've got um, my favorite Bible magic story, which is Samuel's mother, who's in the high priest's house, mm -hmm. crying and wailing so much that the high priest thinks she's drunk. And when he understands mm -hmm. that he got it wrong, kind of kind of like he's, it, it's a Morpheus moment. He's like, get away, you drunk woman. Mm -hmm. She says, I'm not drunk, I'm miserable. <laughs> and he says, in that case, mm -hmm. go home, you will have your child. It's, uh -huh. it's a real, you know, spooky, mm -hmm. cool moment. And but mm -hmm. 
the high priest says, you'll have to bring him back. That child will be mine. And I, I think mm-hmm. that's another thing that Some is... Some inspiration for what happens here. Yeah. yeah. So mm-hmm. that, and, and then we, of course, we have that picked up in a lot of fairy tales of magical, mm-hmm. magical conceptions and pregnancies. So anyway, yeah, yeah that was, I, I love me a good biblical pregnancy. I, I also, at some point, I have to say, like the whole Samuel story in the Bible is just one of my favorites mm-hmm. because there's a joke in it where Eli, the, the high priest, keeps, wait, no, it's Samuel's asleep. He, God is calling him and he keeps getting up and waking up the high priest and saying, I'm here. And the high priest says, you know, go back to bed, quit bothering me. What's the deal? And the third time God says, oh, no, it's me. And I'm thinking, why did God have to wait until the third time? Couldn't God have just announced in the beginning, oh, no, it's me, I'm God? This to me is actual yeah. scriptural proof that God had a sense of humor. God absolutely, I believe, does have a sense of humor. Or, or to put it in my more agnostic way, yeah. uh, I think the writers had a sense of humor. The writers had a sense of humor when writing that. And that's really fun to see that. That's why the Old Testament kind of rocks. I mean, it really does. You know, it's it's some good stuff. Or I'm sorry. When there's no the body Torah. horror. Yes. There's, I have to say, the Torah, there's, yes. there's some weird stuff. Having read the Bible in mm-hmm. Hebrew, there's some weird stuff. There's some body horror. But I mean, that's really interesting, though. And I think that that speaks to the reason why these stories resonate with us. Why do we go back to these tropes over and over and over again? Why do we see them in our mythologies? You know, it's because there's something there that is deeply resonant and that matters and that means something and trying to like, you know, like coal miners, we're going deep into the caves and mining the meaning out of these stories that have been, you know, that have been around for such a long time, that have been kept with us for such a long time that we have held deep and revisited and gone back to over and over and over again because they do have these insights. And so I find that really interesting because clearly I've not read, you know, a lot of the Bible. Um, It's not really something that I've spent a a ton of time with, but that, you know, this baby shall be mine, which is something that in the comics I found completely offensive, but yet has its roots in stories that we've been telling for a really long time. And what is to be mined from the meaning of that? Um, I think it's interesting. And now I will have to say that um, the way I was trained in biblical analysis was very legalistic, very, you know, fine tuning and looking for the loophole, the meaning, the extension. And Mm -hmm. I, I was thinking about this because obviously people use the Bible, Old and New Testament to justify a whole lot Mm -hmm. of not goodness. And uh, Mm -hmm. I remember I think of this as a segue kind of into our next topic. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was once asked by someone, a young woman, she said, you know, I don't know who else I can ask this biblically. What is the position on uh, female masturbation? Mm -hmm. And I said, I don't think that there is anything in the Bible that uh, would suggest that female masturbation is a problem. And I want to say for the record that I am all for male masturbation, too, as Woody Allen said before he became problematical, it's always sex with someone you love or should be, uh, which which leads us into the fear of queer. The, yeah, um, there's one thing that I've kind of noticed, and it's just something that I, I sort of wanted to to mention a little bit, is that most of the queer characters in Sandman this season have been presented as dangerous. So I started going through a list, and, and, and I think, you know, I mean, the Corinthian, clearly our biggest, darkest threat. He is gay. Uh, Desire, who is portrayed as dangerous and malevolent, is non-binary. Uh, Boogeyman, gay, at least bisexual, also evil. Alec Burgess, gay, weak, and sort of evil. Alex's 
boyfriend Paul. Uh, seems more powerless to help Morpheus than evil, but still it's kind of a, a weakness of character in that he probably could have done something if he was willing to risk his life and his lifestyle. Um, you know, for somebody who had been in captivity for, you know, 80 years or however long it was at the end of this. Um, you know, Marsh was more of a predator in the comics than in the TV show, but still like not not great. Not great, you know, um, pretending to have a relationship with Bet so that he can get access to her son. That really sucks. Um, Johanna Constantine is bisexual and sort of goodish, but also really problematic. Rachel is an absolute angel and falls to the kill your gaze trope. Um, Funland is a pedophile who likes boys. Um, and I'm thinking about it. I'm like, is Hal our only good and lovable named queer character? Because I feel like I'm missing something. Yeah, it, it depends on what the nature of Zelda and Chantal's relationship is, which is very True. unclear. Mm-hmm. We're not sure. We are absolutely not sure. Um, and I mean, the thing is, like, when it comes right down to it, the argument can be made that most of the characters in Sandman, regardless of, you know, sexuality, orientation, gender expression, um, are dangerous to a degree. I mean, they're dangerous. It's, it's, it's a community. Yeah. I mean, here's the problem with having a lot of representation in a horror or a partially horror series. You know, if you're not going to be a victim and you're not going to be a predator, mm-hmm. you're probably going to be boring <laughs> and not have a lot to do. <laughs> Right, because this is what the story has. At the same time, you know, you, you do like I, I typically don't like to go extra textual when I'm talking about a story, right? Because the extra textual stuff is extra textual. At the same time, we live in a world in which stories like have incredible amounts of power and that the representation like when I was talking, you know, a couple of weeks ago about how all I, I don't care if, you know, despair is presented as a fat woman with dirty hair. But like if we could have fat women who are not like that who are pretty and beautiful and sexy the way that fat women are and can be but are not represented in our media um that you know that seeing some balance in in queer characters who are not you know super super problematic so i guess my point is like i completely understand that most of the people in sandman are going to be a problem um but overall you know we have to be careful about that kind of of stuff um and we you know really need to like Keep an eye on it, unless your eyeballs have been eaten by the Corinthian, in which case I apologize for that phrasing. Um, but, you know, it's just it's one of those things where, like, we, we need to be careful about that kind of stuff because it does, like, reinforce this impression um, about about queer people being, you know, somewhat off, you know, um, in, in that way when they're just like everybody else. So as we move on from that, let's get to our favorite part of every episode of Endless, which is talking about our favorite part of this episode of Sandman. Uh, what was your favorite part in this episode? Uh, my favorite part is, I think, Jed hearing all the snatches of the collector's conversations and not understanding what they're referencing because of that whole, you know, am, it, it could be a, a game show. Am I a comic book fan or a serial killer? It, it just <laughs> felt like a lot of fun. Also, just the Corinthian eating ice cream. I realized that he probably, uh, as I said before, my eyes might not be his first choice. Uh, but watching him lick that ice cream, a girl can dream. It's pretty great. A girl can absolutely dream. Um, For me, I have to say it's when Gilbert's going from panel to panel at the convention and it is slowly dawning on him that this is not okay. Um, Everything about the convention I just found absolutely delightful.
if you enjoyed these eyeballs, if you enjoyed this conversation <laughs> and would like to join in, connect with the show on Twitter. Follow at Chipperish and use the hashtag EndlessPodcast or send your comments or questions to Endless at Chipperish.com. This episode of Endless was edited by Chipperish content editor Jack Cram. Jack, since you're our guest, would you care to uh, collect Mr. Sitz? We'll be back next time with Lost Hearts, episode 10 of Netflix's The Sandman Season 1. Until then, he's going to come looking for me. Mm, no, he's not. He always comes looking for me. Not this time. Shh.